We're in the middle of a series looking at the book of 2 Samuel uh, that I've called Game of Thrones uh, because it, for two reasons, because, partly because it's a book all about uh, the throne of Israel, about the kings of Israel, how David particularly uh, became king. This has happened about 3,000 years ago uh, in Israel, uh, the land that we now know as Israel, that was becoming a nation in its own right. Uh, rather than a group of tribes. And David was the second king of Israel. And so it's Game of Thrones because of that. But I've also called it Game of Thrones because I'm uh, wanting to uh, point out something about the stories we're reading, which is they become very domesticated. Uh, they can become very tame for those of us who are familiar with the Bible and lose their impact. And they're not really like that at all. If you read them uh, with a fresh eyes, they are grim. They're gruesome. They could be an HBO special on TV. And it would be after nine o'clock because the, uh, the uh, as they used to say of the news of the world, all of human life is here. And human life isn't very pretty. Uh, I'm saying this as something of a warning. Uh, for those who, are, uh, uh, those who are unfamiliar with these texts, that they're not nice texts. They're not nice texts. Uh, Second Samuel is not a very nice book. Uh, but human beings are not very nice. Uh, and it's much more important that the Bible is true than that it's pleasant. Because if it was always pleasant, then it wouldn't be true. It wouldn't show us anything about ourselves. Some of these stories are meant to shock us. Uh, we look at King David's life, not because he was a king. There is uh, a sense in which he's important as a historical king, in the same way that Henry Seventh and Henry Eighth are important as kings of England. And that uh, we're thinking about Canada, that Justin Trudeau becoming Prime Minister of Canada is an important moment in that nation's history. And you could say that for the same for presidents of America. There is an importance in kings, but King David is different from all of the others. And it says we don't study Justin Trudeau or President Clinton or President Nixon or Queen Victoria in the same way we study King David. And that's because David in the Bible is there to teach us about Jesus. Right? This is a Christian view of scripture, but I don't apologize for that. I am a Christian. If you've been wondering, and let me disabuse you of that nation. Christians understand King David as a real person who really existed, who's interesting in his own right, but whose significance, whose meaning, is found in the way he points to Jesus. And I, again, I apologise if you've heard this before, but I'm conscious there are people with us who've not heard it before, that uh, in the uh, stories of Jesus that we have in the Gospels, one of the most frequent ways Jesus is referred to, his frequent titles, his names, is Son of David. And people say this with the expectation that it says something about him. So when he rides into Jerusalem and there's a near riot going on and people lining the streets and throwing at him and ripping the trees to bits in order to prepare away from him. I mean, I don't know if you can imagine Hyde Park, that there's suddenly someone riding a horse through Hyde Park and people are literally pulling the trees to pieces in order to make a path for him. The thing they shout is, Hosanna, glory to God. Hosanna to the son of David. Well, what they're saying is everything we saw in David is being fulfilled in you. So Jesus, sorry, King David is interesting for us because he teaches us about Jesus. 
His life is designed to teach us about Jesus. In two ways. He teaches us about Jesus because he shows us some of the character traits that Jesus had. He's a great king. He's one who's willing to make war when it's necessary to free people who are enslaved. But also because he shows us our need for Jesus. He's a flawed king. He makes terrible decisions. Actually, we've seen as we've been reading through how the author of 2 Samuel has been sowing the seeds for David's eventual downfall in the way that he abuses women and accumulates wives and has children with seemingly indifferent to the commands of God that you're supposed to have one wife. The king was supposed to have one wife and be loyal to her. So he shows us those two things. He shows us who Jesus is, but he also shows us why we need Jesus. And as we come to the story today, I want us to keep all of those things in our minds. It is a, I'm going to give another warning, it is, a, it is an unsettling story. But it's one that's worth considering because of what it teaches us about Jesus and about how we can relate to him. As we read Second uh, Samuel, and we're in uh, chapter 6 today, chapters 5, 6 and 7 are, if you like, peak David. They are the maximum point of David's powers. I suppose if you, I'm a big football fan, if you think about Manchester United, I would say peak Manchester United was 1999, when they won everything. Right, there was this team that went out there, they won the English League, they won the English Cup, they won the European Cup. There was no one in their way. No one could stand before them. And you could look at them and say, oh, that was the moment. I mean, they did other stuff afterwards. There was good stuff and bad stuff. They did stuff before that, but that was the moment when they were the peak of their powers. And there was no one who could stand before them. And this is David at the peak of his powers. He's united Israel. Everyone has been united with him by winning battles and delivering the people from their enemies. He has uh, drawn the surrounding nations to him. We've seen how the kings of the other nations have started to come to Jerusalem and bring money and men and tribute to to build Jerusalem up because they're drawn to Israel. And yet even in these passages we see his flaws as well as his greatness. Because he's a leader, those flaws matter far more than they would do normally. I always give a lunchtime summary. This is a summary if you go home and you have to write down one thing that you learned this morning. I always like to epitomize it in one or two sentences. And today's is this. God is not our servant. We are his. But through Jesus, he can bring us peace and joy and purpose. God is not our servant. We are his. But through Jesus, he brings us joy and peace and purpose. God's not our servant. We are his. And through Jesus, he brings us peace and joy and purpose. Now, we're going to read uh, in a moment. Uh, But before we do... Uh, I want us to go back a few hundred years before this reading happens. Uh, In order to understand what's going on, you're going to need a little bit of context. So this is, if you like, a previously on. Previously on Israel. 
if you don't know the story of the Bible, so God uh, calls his family. He calls his family through Abraham. And Abraham has loads of kids. He has kids in a miraculous way. It's worth reading. It's in Genesis. They get bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually there's 12 of them. And they go down to uh, Egypt. And uh, there's a story of Joseph. You know, he's got the many coloured coat. Lots of songs. Very big, big age for songs that was. And uh, he sings his way through Egypt. Goes to jail. Gets made the prime minister of Egypt. He sets up a famine relief program, nationalises Egypt's industry. You see, you thought Jeremy Corbyn was ahead of his time. Let me tell you, he's 3,000 years behind. Nationalises Egypt's grain industry and saves the world in his area uh, by providing them with grain. And so Israel moves to Egypt. And over time, they grow and grow and grow. And people find it difficult when there's immigrant communities in their country who get big and strong and powerful. Racism is nothing new. It's there in the Old Testament. And the Egyptians are uh, scared of the Israelites, so they, put, they make them slaves. Right? They abuse them economically, they actually have them murdered in order to suppress them. And uh, God comes to the rescue of his people. 400 years go past and God says, I've heard my people crying and I'm going to save them. And so he sends Moses to them and uh, he liberates his people from Egypt. And they come out of Egypt... And as with any group of people who've been set free, they've got to learn how to be free. Right, you get this with prisoners. Heather does this, uh, does amazing work with prisoners. She goes into Felton Young Offenders Institute and she uh, helps the prisoners and teaches the Alpha course there and gives them an understanding of Jesus and has the most amazing stories of how uh, young men with no hope come to find freedom through God. But it's no good finding freedom and then no one teaching you how to live. See, when they come out of prison, they need churches that will disciple them and will care for them and will teach them how you, how you pay your rent, how you go and buy food, how you get a job, how you relate to God. And so God teaches the people of Israel how to be free. He says, when you're free, I don't want you to behave like everyone else. See, that's the risk. All you've known is Egypt. All you've known is people who are murderers and slave owners. And so God gives them a new law and says, no, I want you to live differently. I want you to live like a light for the world around you. And he says, I want to be with you. And so God gives them these instructions. And the instructions are bizarre. Now, those of you who are Indiana Jones fans, this won't come as a surprise. Uh, I was never particularly an Indiana Jones fan when I was a boy, but my children are obsessed. I mean, obsessed. We have figures, we have every movie made, we have two Lego computer games of Indiana Jones. Uh, What God says to Israel is, uh, you're going to learn to worship me, and to worship me, I'm everywhere, I'm everywhere. Uh, The Orthodox Church have this prayer, uh, Heavenly uh, King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, treasure of blessings and giver of life. God's everywhere. Right? God says, I'm everywhere, but I know that you need to worship me, so I'm going to teach you how to worship. And the way we're going to worship is you're going to build something. That makes it easier for you to worship your physical people. There's going to be a place where you find me. So he tells them to build this box. And they put relics inside it. And the box is just a box in one sense. It's just made of wood. It's very nicely made, I'm sure. Uh, And it's got poles through it. But it's significant because God says, when you come to that box, you will find me there. I will be present there. Now I'm present everywhere, but you'll find my presence there. It's a bit like uh, churches for some people. You know, God is present in your home and in your bathroom, in your bed. 
and in your kitchen and in your pantry. But it's somehow easier to find him in certain places. And uh, God gives this box as a place they can meet him. Metaphorically, he's sitting, he says, between the carved angels on top. It represents the presence of God and it's called the Ark of the Covenant. And God says, now because this box represents my presence, it's important. How you relate to the box shows how you relate to me. So the way you treat the box shows what you, what you think about me. Now I totally understand that. I have things that are precious to me. If one of my kids comes in and picks up something that's very precious to me and rips it in two. Now on one hand they've broken something. Usually it's quite easy to replace. But what they're really doing is showing how they feel about me. You get that with flag burning now. You see that on the news sometimes in certain countries. They burn flags. It's usually the American flag. Don't know quite why, but anyway. Usually the American flag. People burn the flag. Now, who cares, right? It's a piece of cotton, probably worth five pounds. But they're not really burning a flag. What they're doing is showing we despise you. And God says, the way you treat this box, just a box, but the way you treat the box will show how you feel about me. So when you carry it, I want you to carry it in a certain way. When you come near it, you've got to come near it in a certain way. And eventually, uh, everywhere the ark goes, because God is with the people, they win their battles. But eventually they lose the battles and the ark. Why? Because they deserted God. And they found out that when they deserted God, it turns out it's just a box. You can read all about, all about that in 1 Samuel. Anyway, I've given you a, uh, a few hundred years of history in about uh, three minutes. So now we're going to read 2 Samuel 6. We're going to read about David. But Heather, can you come and read this for me? Slightly losing my voice. Hang on a sec. Let me give you the mic. All of uh, 2 Samuel 6. Oh, let me just... David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahiho, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, tambourines, rattles and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God, because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irrelevant act, uh, irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the Ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obedidom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obedidom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the Ark of God. So David went to bring up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those, 
jumped there, did you say? No, it's a reader. Oh, yeah. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, um, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. Thanks. Uh, Liz is going to come and read to us from the stories of Jesus in Matthew. So if you're trying to follow along in a Bible, uh, this is Matthew 16, and page 983 if you're reading in the Bible. Uh, and Liz is reading from verse 21. Just down there. Hang on a sec. Okay, so that's Matthew 16, verse 21. And in this Bible, it's entitled, Jesus Predicts His Death. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Mm, thanks, Liz. And finally, I'm going to read from First uh, Peter 3 and verse 18. Don't worry about finding it. It's only very short. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God.
sorry. I, um, I'm, I'm not going to preach on this. I wasn't going to preach on this. But I... What does it profit someone to gain the whole world and lose their soul? Uh, I'm going to... I will recap what Second Samuel was about in a minute. But I, I just feel very strongly that, that for some people here, that verse needs to be repeated and explained. When they opened the tomb of Charlemagne, the great king of France... This wasn't what I was going to talk about. If you've got Second Samuel open, don't worry about it for the moment. Keep Matthew 16 open. When they opened uh, the tomb of Charlemagne, the great king of France, the Holy Roman Emperor, one of the most uh, powerful and widespread figures in Western European history, they found his body sat on a throne. And the body had wilted away, obviously, but the gold remained. And on his lap, they found a Bible that had been left open by whoever had buried him. I don't know whether it was on Charlemagne's instructions or not. And the Bible was left open at this verse. Amidst all of the gold with which he had been buried, he pointed to the verse, what does it profit anyone to gain the whole world if they lose their soul? I don't know what it is you sense is driving your life this morning. But I feel like for some of us there are decisions that we're having to take that we're wondering what to do about. And I want to encourage you, if you're in that position, if you are someone who's having to make decisions, to remember that it profits you nothing to gain the whole world. In the end, you will be buried as Charlemagne was buried. I will be buried as Charlemagne was buried. The question is not what I have amassed in the meantime. The question is what happens to me afterwards? What happens to your soul? And I just want to appeal to you. If you're somebody who's trying to make a decision this morning about something and you don't know how to make it, be rational. I'm a, I'm a lawyer, a barrister by training... I work in rational arguments. Let me make you a rational argument for why it is that you should prize your soul rather than anything else. What else can endure past this life? What else has any enduring significance? You can acquire money. Do you know how much one pound was worth 30, 40, 50 years ago? I mean, I can't tell you, but I can tell you that it's a lot of money. Do you know how much is one pound worth today? Nothing. It buys you a pack of children's playing cards. Next year, it won't even buy you that. Okay, the money itself will decrease in value over time. It's worthless. Money is worthless. Now, what about other things? What about a career? I said this last week. If you think to yourself, I'm going to gain the whole world because I am going to make my great name for myself. I'm going to become the permanent secretary of my department. I'm going to become the CEO of my company. I'm going to become the great lawyer of my generation. Let me tell you, they are all forgotten. Every single lawyer I studied when I was studying to be a barrister, every single judge I knew will be irrelevant within 50 years. I sat next to the greatest mind of his legal generation, Lord Hoffman. We sat down together for a curry once. There you go, I'm name dropping. I do it to show you that I know whereof I speak. And we talked about it. We talked about life, we talked about the law, greatest mind of his generation, House of Lords. I talked about Lord Denning a few weeks ago. Hoffman was Denning of the majority because he was not only clever, but he could persuade people to agree with him, which Denning never quite managed. 
His judgments now are as dust. How many of you even knew his name? The greatest property lawyer of my generation was a man called Lord Walker. I don't know if he's still working. I know him a little bit. Far and away the cleverest man I've ever met. And in 30 years time his name will be nothing. A footnote. The keen legal students will read and then realize that everything he said has been superseded by something else. What does it profit a man, a person, to gain the whole world and lose their soul? What are you working your life for? What are you taking decisions for? And Jesus is saying, I want you to, t- to wake up. And Jesus is one of the most rational men of human history. He's one of the men who makes the most sense in human history. He's not dealing with, it feels good, therefore I should do it. He's not dealing with, it gives me peace for the day, and therefore I should do it. He makes a cold-hearted, cold-headed, strong-minded appeal to fishermen and says, what are you living for? Because I can give you something that will last forever. So we come back to Second Samuel, I'm going to tie this together now. What's going on in 2 Samuel? Well, King David has done enormous things, enormously successful things, and he does them with God's help. If you read chapter 5, he's learned that he wins battles because the ark of the Lord is with him. So you might be thinking right now, Phil, it's great. I hear what you're saying about uh, Charlemagne. Great. Don't know who he is, but I will look him up later. Wikipedia, worth a Google. I hear what you're saying about not losing my soul, but I, 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 I've got God with me. I'm doing well in my life. He prospers me. He, he prospers my business. He prospers my family. I'm, I'm okay. You see, David was in the same position. He'd done really well. He'd done really well with God's help. He thought to himself, what I imagine it must be like to find an assistant who you think is able to run your business better than you. Brilliant. We're going to go a long way. You know, when I found Heather, she was nothing, no. <laughs> we're, in a, we're in a barrister's class together. I often joke to people uh, that I spotted a weakness in the team and I filled it. You know, there was a vacancy, there was one obvious candidate. She happened to be very attractive, I like her a lot. And she fulfills certain skills. I can't sing as well as she can. Perfect, she fulfills the role. David's got God on his side, and so he thinks to himself, well, I can conquer anybody I like. What, what, are we, what are we doing? And he wants something good. And you might be thinking that as well. You might think, well, I've got God on my side. I've added him to my life. Now I'm going to go a long way. And so David goes, and he thinks, well, what more do I want to do? Well, I want the, I want the Ark of the Covenant, the, the, the box that people took into battle, that when they go into battle, they win. You know, David is nothing if not a great warrior. And he's got in mind a great uh, weapon. And so here, uh, if you like, is the scene in Israel. That's not really the scene in Israel. That's, uh, that's the Soviet Union. Uh, there was a dead giveaway by the poster on the wall. And, 
David's got a great, great parade going on. There's a military band going. He's got all of the young men who serve in the army are out. They're singing. They're dancing. If you like, they're marching like Cossacks with their band going loudly. And in the middle, he's got the great weapon of Israel, God's presence. The thing that defeats their enemies. And he thinks, here it is. My arsenal is so strong. And they're halfway there. He strapped it to a cart, travelling behind a cow's backside. Yanks the presence of God into uh, Jerusalem. Or on its way to Jerusalem. In the middle, something goes wrong. You see the cart starts to fall over. There's a reason. There's a wisdom in God's way of carrying this box. Which is it's not very stable. And one of David's men grabs it. And he dies. I mean, you can imagine the scene. You can imagine being in Red Square in Moscow and you're in the middle of this military proceedings and suddenly one of the tanks starts shooting people. You can imagine what happens. The whole crowd disperses. The ark is abandoned on someone's farmland. So what's going on here? I mean, David's got God on his side, hasn't he? He's enlisted God. He's spotted a vacancy in his army and he's fulfilled it. He's filled it. David wants to have God working for him. Why do I say that? Am I just being uncharitable? Well, no, I don't think so. You see, if you read in uh, the passage closely, you will have noticed uh, verse 8. David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And on that, to this day, the place where it happened is called outbreak against Uzzah. Why do I say that David sees God as someone who's on his side for defeating his enemies? Well, that is exactly the language he uses for when God does defeat his enemies. In chapter 5, verse 20, a few uh, verses earlier, David says, God has broken out against my enemies. Who is he? He's the God who breaks out against my enemies. And now it turns out he's breaking out against me. doesn't bother with any of the detailed instructions about how he should, uh, how he should treat God. And so David's in this position. He's not somebody who is an atheist. He's not somebody who's opposed to God. He, he, he's got God on his side. And when he finds out that God is not actually on his side, he's angry. Well, you can imagine that, can't you? I thought you were supposed to make me rich. Well, how come I'm poor? I, supposed you, I thought you were supposed to defeat my enemies. Well, how come my own men are dead? I thought you were supposed to make me great, and now I'm a laughingstock. Surely God was supposed to bolster David's reign. Surely it doesn't matter if David ignored some outdated, conservative, irrelevant nonsense about carrying a box. A turn, as ever, to the words of Bob Dylan. Oh, the history books, they tell it so well. The cavalry's charged and the Indians fell. The cavalry's charged and the Indians died. Oh, the country was young with God on its side. The Spanish-American War had its day and the Civil War too was soon laid away. And the names of the heroes I was made to memorise with guns in their hands and God on their side. David finds out that God doesn't work for anybody. 
God is not on David's side. He's not a weapon to be deployed against David's enemies. David must choose if he is on God's side. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose their soul? God is not David's pet, an attack talk to be deployed, or a weapon to be used against his enemies. God is the God of all the universe. He does not exist to serve David. David exists to serve him. There's a story that captures this thought very well in uh, the early books of the Bible when Joshua, who was Moses' successor as Israel's leader, comes to fight against some terrible, terrible people. And he goes outside his camp and he encounters this man with an enormous sword. Angels, by the way, have enormous swords in scripture. Think about that next time you wrote a nativity play. Turns up and there's this guy with an enormous sword and Joshua falls on his face because he's so scared. And he says, have you come to fight with me or against me? Are you on our side or on their side? And the man says, I'm not on your side, I'm not on their side. I come to command God's armies and he's on neither side. My question is, whose side are you on? We don't have to be tempted, uh, we don't have to look far for examples of how this applies now. How we relegate God to a domestic deity, a mascot to be deployed for blessing without requiring anything of us. Dylan recounts the terrible, terrible troubles of a nation that proclaims that God is on its side as it massacres its enemies. Or political parties who deploy the name of God when their words and actions are against his teaching. Or I'll speak against myself. I and my colleagues who debate what God teaches as if he is nothing but an intellectual trifle to be dismissed. And nothing hangs on our words. Discarding outdated teaching. And talking of Jesus as if he was nothing but a plaything. When each of us uses God for what we can obtain from him, without allowing him to speak into how we live, we are at risk of committing the same mistake Jesus, uh, David did. As Jesus said, what does it profit someone to gain the whole world if they lose their soul? He who would come after me must take up a cross and follow me. God is not our servant, we are his. If I sound strong, it's because I want to be strong. Now, God, in his grace and his mercy, does not treat people the way that Uzzah is treated here now. God makes a dramatic point in this chapter because the consequences of David getting this wrong could be disastrous. If the Israelites start to deploy God as their pet attack dog, then the whole world is in danger. And so God puts a stop to it immediately. He doesn't do that with us. He'll let us carry on in his grace and his mercy. He will cut us enough rope and then eventually we hang ourselves. But my beloved friends, I want to ask you, do you think that it matters? Do you think that he matters? Are you in a position of saying, I can do all things with God on my side? Or will you pray to him, God, I want to be on thy side? That was a nice little ancient English pun. So what then are we to say of God? I mean, David is in the middle of this passage and he is left terrified. I mean, rightly so. 
He's been extraordinarily blasphemous and he's tried to use God for his own military purposes. What are we to say about this God? Am I to send you away like uh, the proverbial cliche of a Scottish Presbyterian minister declaiming your sins and abandoning you to repent in weeping and ashes? Well, no. You see, David goes and finds the ark, the box. They've abandoned it in his farm. And it turns out that where the presence of God is, there's joy. The farmer whose land he abandoned it on is blessed beyond anything he can imagine. And there's so much happiness and joy that the people in Jerusalem are looking over and thinking, hang on a minute, we want a piece of that action. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've had, maybe the reason you're here this morning is because you had a friend and you just looked at them and thought, oh, God, everything about you is wrong, but there's something that seems so right. I just want something. There's something about your life that has a presence with it that brings blessing and joy. I can't put my finger on it, but you seem to love Jesus, and so maybe it's him. When David sees the blessing and joy that comes from God's presence, he goes back and he finds out what he did wrong. You see, this is another reason why David is a great king. He's willing to go back and find out what he does wrong. When he does, he finds out that God provided a way for people to come to him. And that they had to offer a sacrifice. And so verse 13, he says, When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. The only way to come into the presence of God, to be united with him and enjoy his blessings, was for David to humble himself. To repent and trust in the sacrifice God had prepared. My friends, it's talking about Jesus. St. John, Jesus' best friend, wrote these words. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. See, God is not some distant and dangerous dictator who's out to get you. God wants to be with you. God longs to bless you. He longs to prosper your soul. When Jesus is saying to his friends, what does it profit a man to lose, to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What he's saying to them is, I can give you something that's worth more than the whole world. You want riches? What I've got is better. You want life? What I my life is better. You want to last? Well, I can make you last forever. You want your name to endure? Well, my name is written in heaven and yours can be too. You want to bless your friends? Well, come to me because I'm the great blessing. You want life? Then I can give it to you so you can give it to other people. What I have to offer you is better than gaining everything. Everything. You could become the CEO of Microsoft Industries, the most valuable company in the world, and what Jesus has to offer you is better. No wonder David is there in his palace in Jerusalem with all his gold, with all his treasures, with all his concubines, thinking, I'm jealous of the farmer. I'm jealous of the farmer who I abandoned. You know, the ancient fly tipping. I abandoned my wooden box on this guy's field. And look, everything's going right for him. The king of Israel is jealous of this man of nobody. Nothing. Because God is with him. God is not some distant, dangerous dictator. He loves us and wants to be with us. He's created us for himself and we only find lasting peace and joy and life in relationship with him. But we have to come in repentance, leaving our own agendas behind. And we have to come through Jesus. 
What awaits us if we do? Well, the same thing that awaited David. I mean, it's a massive party. This chapter is about a party. He and the people danced and they shouted and they played music and they were like, wow, it's great to be with God. They found a community where the king danced with slave girls. Not in an unpleasant, unsexually abusive way, but because they were all level in God's presence. The rich shared their food with the poor in God's presence. God's not out to get you and make you miserable. He promises eternal life and peace and hope and joy. The kingdom of God is a place of dance and delight. But you've got to accept its king. Dylan would later encounter Christ for himself and pen these words. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. That's my dream. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. There you are, Heather. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. We need to be serious about who God is and how we relate to him. My friends, if you are in face with making choices this morning, make rational, wise choices and choose life. If it's something you know you need to deal with, don't put it off or make excuses. Put it right today. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus in the way we've talked about, the message of this passage to you is that God is real and you'll be accountable to him. So make peace with him. The good news is he's provided a perfect way for you to do that through Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus, the message of Uzzah is rejoice. Rejoice. The joy that comes from God, he longs to give you. It is the joy of a king dancing with slave girls and soldiers of a kingdom united at peace with itself and with its God. And that can be yours. And that, my friends, will not perish. It will last forever. You don't need to be afraid. He's made a way to dwell with you, to bring you hope and peace and fulfillment in Jesus. So come and find your joy in him. God is not our servant. We are his But through Jesus, he can bring us peace and joy and purpose.